0: I am joined by Liz Lenz, writer and author. Hello.
2: Hi. Thank you so much for having me.
0: You're so welcome. Thanks for coming on The Divorce Club.
2: (laughs) I am a proud member of
0: The Divorce Club. Well, that's what we like to hear. So I normally start off by saying to people, you are divorced. How does that make you feel?
2: I love being divorced. I highly recommend it to everyone all the time. It was truly one of the best things that's ever happened to me.
0: I don't think anyone's ever said that so far on the podcast. So I like that as an opening statement.
2: Really? I mean, it was, I mean, obviously it was hard. Um, but, but I, I, I'm freer, right? Like I, I have a career, I have a life, I have my kids. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have those things if I hadn't gotten divorced. Like I wouldn't have a career if I, hadn't, so. Okay, so
0: how long have you been divorced?
2: Well, um, we separated in 2017 and then the divorce was finalized in 2018. Okay. So about two years.
0: And how long were you with your ex? 12 years we were married. Okay, so that's quite a big stint. I was with my ex for six years and then we were married for like a year and a half. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. so I was a, a quickie <laughs> in the marriage, out of the marriage, let's go.
2: Yeah, I, you know, I think I would have gotten divorced earlier if I hadn't been raised in a very religious background to where that I had been told, you know, it was like the worst thing. Well, let's,
0: so let's talk more about that. Whereabouts were you raised and what religion was that that you were brought (laughs) up in?
2: Yeah. So I was raised um, for most of my life in Texas, uh, which is a very conservative state, here in the United States and it um, and I was raised evangelical Christian and we were homeschooled. So we were the ones like like when you picture homeschoolers with long hair and jean jumpers, kind of that like uh, fundamentalist Mormon look that was us and um and so that's the world i was raised in i will say uh, my parents have since left that behind they are not that anymore um and i did in high school and college like so many people make a big break with religion. And I had thought I was free of it, um, you know, and more, say, I was like more liberal, more enlightened with my ideas of religion. Um, but I, I got married at 22, which I know for a lot of people is super young, but for the women in my family, it's very old. And it was the bold feminist statement to wait until I had graduated from college to get married. It was also a bold feminist statement to graduate from college. Um, it's not something uh, many women in my family have done. So I, I actually think my mom was uh, one of the first in her family to finish college. Um, so I had thought that I'd left it all behind, but, but the person I married was very religious. And, um, and then, you know, it turns out it, it takes a lot of unlearning to unlearn the things that you were taught right
0: definitely i was brought up roman catholic oh Um, yeah yeah and so we come from an irish family and i wasn't even brought up that strictly like we didn't even like religiously go to church every sunday but i definitely still have all those marriages for life you just have to stay there and, and make it work
2: well there's also there's also that religious idea that your happiness is not important.
0: Yeah, the union is the important thing.
2: <laughs> Which is so silly, but but I mean, I think that that was the hardest thing to unlearn was that I, religion teaches people, especially women, that you're not supposed to be happy. That if you're stuck and miserable, you need to be stay stuck and miserable because, you know, you're learning an important lesson from God or something. And um it, it, and that I think is is really the hardest thing to unlearn,
0: and do you still have religion in your life now, or have you completely gone the other way?
2: so i um I actually wrote a whole book about religion and America and how it's changing and how it's changing our politics. But um I have been attending a small, very liberal church that flies the rainbow flag, but since uh, the pandemic hit, I have not been to church, and I was chiming in on the Zooms every once in a while, but um, I have just kind of quit that. So for now, I am uh, not without religion, but just on a break.
0: (laughs) On a break with God. (laughs) I like it. Um, So you were brought up in this really religious household and you said... It was a feminist statement for you not to get married until 22. So when did you start feeling the pressure? At what age did you feel that pressure to get married from?
2: I was feeling it in high school or even before that because, you know, I was raised to believe that whatever else a woman does, her most important job is being married and having children. Well, her most important job is having children. And obviously you shouldn't do that if you're not married. Right. And, um, you know, there was, I mean, there was a lot of, I went to Bible studies. My mom, you know, made us read these books. Um, there's a very famous one. I kissed dating goodbye, which was like our handbook that, you know, basically said, you don't have sex. You stay quote unquote, pure until marriage, and then you, you are married and you have babies and that is your primary purpose and anything else you do is ancillary. And so, you know, so, so getting married, so yeah, getting married was, you know, my mom was like, Oh, we thought you'd never get married. But when I went to college, you know, I was getting pressure from my parents. Don't go to college, live at home go to community college. You don't need to go to college. You can just meet a nice man here. You know, uh, th- those were those were the words being told to me then. And, you know, I, I did go to college. I did very well um, in college. And, uh, and I remember I got engaged right around the same time that I got inducted into the National or into the Phi Beta Kappa Honor Society. And my parents were way more excited about the engagement <laughs> than Phi Beta Kappa, which I remember at the time remarking upon and saying, you know, the one was a lot harder work than the other, to be honest.
0: So when you got engaged, was that someone from college, or was that someone you chosen, or was it someone that your parents knew?
2: So I had met him in high school. And we had started dating in college. So, uh, but they did know him. Uh, No, they didn't choose him. So my parents had kind of said this thing where if you do date, you have to do something called courting, where basically the man has to come to the house and ask my dad permission to date us and then state his intentions that he was going to you know, that he would, that we were dating with the purpose of marriage and we weren't just casually dating. There were like very specific rules about this. And this is what my parents had said. And those rules flew out the window with my older sister who, um, dropped out of college and got married to a man who she later divorced. Um, but their marriage was very bad. And, um, and uh for for many many reasons none of them are mine to speak upon at the moment but um but i think seeing that happen with my sister my parents were like okay some of these rules that we have said, we're not going to try to enforce them anymore so when it came time for me to get engaged obviously they they knew my ex um he had been uh he had been around for a while and was a good quote-unquote Christian boy, so they approved.
0: Did you think at the time when you were engaged, is that something you were excited about? Like, Did you feel like it was your decision and you were happy to get married, or was it something that you thought, well, I've got to do this anyway and he seems fine?
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, I, there was another thing that was happening in my life at the time where my younger sister had come forward to say that she had been abused for uh, many years by someone in the family, Um, not my immediate siblings, but someone else. And I've written about this before and do so with her blessing. She's, she's okay if I talk about this. Um, But she had come forward my senior year of college um, with her story and that shook the very foundations of my life. Um, It was truly an unsettling experience, not just obviously for her, but for my whole family. It it was it was probably the event that caused my parents to completely reexamine their religion and uh, and how they practiced it. Uh, But but it it took a while and in those Years things were very tumultuous and I grew up one of eight kids my family uh, We were all very close. My family was my life and um, and and it uh, Clearly it was broken before but everything fell apart and I think what happened was I found the safest thing that I could find and held on to it and I'll give my ex that he is very stable, financially stable. You know, pretty consistent personality. Um, <laughs> he doesn't. You know, n- no bold moves, no loud tempers. Um, and that that to me felt very very safe. So I mean, of course, I was excited. Um, but I also remember thinking that I had been taught that marriage is for life and that it's okay if you're not head over heels in love with somebody, right? Like I didn't, I knew I didn't feel head over heels in love. Uh, Obviously I liked him a lot, but I remember talking to friends who still remember these conversations, you know, where I was like, well, people have arranged marriages and don't feel don't feel head over heels in love. I was like, maybe that'll just happen for us years later. And they were like, that doesn't sound right. (laughs) They were like, that doesn't seem great. And I was like, no, no, I have a plan. You know, I'm a, I'm actually a very practical person. And, um, so to me it was, it was a very practical thing. It was, you know, here's a person I like, here's a person I trust. Here's a person who seems safe and good. I, might never find anybody like that ever again.
0: It sounds like, you know, that was just what you needed at that time. Yeah. And it, maybe it helped you in certain ways and didn't help in other ways.
2: You know, I, I've talked to so many people who have said, you know, I, I got married under similar circumstances and we're still together, right? Uh, and then other people who were like, I got married and we were head over heels in love. And it caused me to miss big warning signs Um, and now we're divorced. So I don't think there is, you know, this could be a very different conversation had it gone well. Right. Um, But but it didn't. And now I'm here. So I think it's easy to look back and say, oh, I miss this. I miss this. I miss this. But I think in every relationship, you're always missing something.
0: Yeah, definitely. I was head over heels in love and I am still divorced. So we're still in the same club now, however <laughs> we got here. Um, so you are in the divorce club now. And uh, I i guess I came across you because I found an article that you'd written that I loved, um, which was about the fact that you say your marriage was more equal after you got divorced. So I just wondered if you could elaborate on that idea a little bit.
2: (laughs) So like so many women, I went into my marriage thinking uh, we were going to be equal partners. And honestly, I I think he thought that too. Um, But our idea of equality was in hindsight, very different. But I went into the marriage thinking I'm going to have a career. I'm going to have a life. I have goals. I have dreams. I'm very ambitious. And um, we got married and we moved to Iowa for his job. And we had some conversations where I said, you know, the things I want to do are going to be very hard to do from Iowa. So um, eventually it would be nice if we moved to a bigger city at some point. And, you know, he's his Family. My family uh, lives in the city of Minneapolis, so that was kind of like the deal. He was like, "Sure, sure, sure. You know, we can move back closer to family once we start having kids, and then you can, you know, pursue your career." And and I think a lot of women make those calculations, right? Your turn, then my turn. Um, and so many women let the other person's turn go first, and that's what I did. And then when it came time for my turn, uh, we started having children and I started working on my career very hard and it started to take off. And I said, okay, like, this is great. This is, this is the time I need some help with childcare. I need these, you know, house things taken off my plate. I'm doing all the emotional labor all the physical labor uh all the dishes all the cooking all the cleaning i need you to uh step up and he just wouldn't um and so then i was like okay i get it you're busy and tired too let's hire somebody and then he said no you know the you know the the conversations he was just like well just clean the house as you go and i'm like do you like understand what it's like to do that with a four-year-old and a two-year-old. Do you know what? Do like, you know what you're asking? You know, or with the dishes, he'd just be like, "Well, just just clear the dishes while you cook dinner. Like, be more efficient with the work." And I was like, "That's just not how any of this works." And you know, I was finding childcare for the kids, but there was always a fight over paying for that child care and then you know fight over hiring babysitters and you know a fight over whether I should ask somebody's mother to come, help with the kids in the childcare. If I had to go on a reporting trip, which when I did go on reporting trips, you know I would cook meals and freeze them and leave them in our uh, basement freezer. A lot of people in the Midwest have like giant freezers in their basement. Uh, so I would you know I'd pre-cook like casseroles, leave him in, you know, so he wasn't even cooking. And then I'd still come home to, you know, piles of laundry, not done, and uh, trash on the floor, <laughs> you know, and then I would, so I would come home and just have double the work. And so I, um, obviously there, there were other reasons I was leaving um, the marriage, but that was a very, that was a big one um, that I, I could never get help. And, um, you know, I I have a very clear memory of standing in my dining room one day after coming home from a reporting trip at midnight the night before and then having to wake up at 5 a.m. with the two-year-old and then clean before the cleaning person came and somehow get a bunch of writing done before I had to pick the kids up at one o'clock in the afternoon. And I, I just like, I just broke. I was like, I cannot do this. This cannot be my life. And we were in marriage therapy at the time and, um, and talking about a lot of these issues. But the, the next time we went to therapy, I said, I'm done, I'm done. I am absolutely done because nothing is getting better. And then to my surprise, once we got divorced and he, you know, he, he is a good father and you know and so we have 50/50 custody of the kids and then once we started having that arrangement it was it was a miracle my life felt like a miracle i was like oh this is what equality feels like right like i'm not doing 50% of the meals and actually i didn't my house is 90% cleaner <laughs> <laughs> cuz I'm not cleaning up after him, right? And yeah. and I'm not doing that emotional labor. I've uh, at since publishing that article I've heard from women who said, "You know what? I I have primary custody of the children, so he's not doing 50/50 of the work, but they're like, but I still my life still feels more equal post divorce because I'm not managing the emotions of another person I'm not cleaning up after another person I'm not you know trying to fit my life in around the life and a career of another person
0: and I just wanted to go back to that moment that you said you were standing in your dining room I think you said and you just broke what did that feel like physically to you at that time? Was it like a physical breaking down or was it that click of a decision being made?
2: It was this moment where my eyes went blurry and I blinked a couple of times and then everything just felt clear and sharp. And and I knew, I just knew that this is it, there's no going back. So we had been in marriage therapy at that point for two years and we were going in every two weeks. You know, there had been moments when we were going in every week, right? So I was very clearly trying to save this marriage. Um, And, uh, but of course I was setting up all the appointments and sending appointment reminders. And, you know, there, there there were a lot of things we were doing to try and make this better. I had already moved out into the guest room at that point. Um, And I remember a few months before I had had a conversation with a friend, a very dear friend, uh, one of the ones who remembers my pre-marriage conversations. And I remember talking to her and she's also in the divorce club. And she said, you know, and I was saying things like, well, you know, maybe if I do all this work, then maybe he'll finally see this isn't working out and this will be a mutual agreement um, and and we can just mutually break apart. And then I was also saying things like, well, Shirley Jackson lived a miserable life in a bad marriage, so maybe I could just do that. (laughs) And the same friends were just like, that's, again, not a good idea. Just don't do that. And, And so she had said, your life is not a game of chicken. You don't have to wait for the other person to swerve first. You can swerve. And that, when when I was in the dining room, and another thing was going on too was um, my ex liked to hide my my possessions, my stuff. So like t-shirts he didn't like, mugs he didn't like, books he didn't like they would just disappear and had been disappearing for our whole marriage. And we had actually talked about it uh, in therapy many times, as you can imagine. And um, so the other thing that had happened was I had come home from this trip and this stupid little sign I have that said, drink up witches. It's very silly. Um, But I had left it out in the dining room. And when I came home, and I was standing there looking at all the housework I had to do, thinking of all the things I had to do. And then that, and I looked around and I saw the drink up witches sign was missing. <laughs> and then, like, my eyes went blurry. Uh, I blinked and then took a breath. And then I felt like the next couple of days I was just walking through the uh the motions i think for the next couple months i was um walking you know just kind of like a walking shell of a person who just gets things done i didn't i actually had one breakdown which was in a hotel in wichita kansas because we had to fake it through my brother's wedding (laughs)
0: well that's hard
2: and and I, you know, I was like in this, I was in this hotel lobby at midnight, because I needed to leave the hotel room. And they were playing a documentary of Princess Diana. <laughs> and they were talking about her life. And I was like, she gets it. She understands. Princess Di knows. And then I just started sobbing in the lobby of this hotel in Wichita, Kansas. I think it was the best Western. And that poor woman was like, we have cookies if you want them. I was like, thank you. And took like five.
0: That's the best reply to like for something to say to someone who's crying in a hotel lobby. <laughs> we have cookies if you want them. It's great.
2: Yes. In hindsight, God bless that woman because uh, she knows she's probably in the club, too. She knows.
0: So you had um, all these kind of intense moments when you decided. And then you made the decision and you started the divorce process and you're doing less kind of physical labor because you're 50-50 custody and you don't have your ex in the house anymore. So how did that feel in those first few months in contrast to those bad moments before your decision was made?
2: it it wasn't something i was anticipating it was a complete surprise to me um and so it it felt amazing um i i was like i i can go out with a friend that was you know back in before the pandemic when we could go out with friends you know it was like oh i can i can go to a book reading and i don't have to negotiate for childcare i can just go to a book reading it was It was, it felt so great. I felt guilty because I was like, I love this. I love being free. I love, uh, I love being able to go out for dinner and not have some, not come home to somebody uh, mad at me because I spent $30 on a dinner or something like that, you know, and I was like, oh. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.
0: Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365 day returns.
2: I can go out to eat and not have to, uh, again, like either pay someone $60 for babysitting um, or, you know, come back and have somebody mad because I didn't come back at 11. It's like 1130 and he had to do bedtime alone you know and so it was just like it was like just just the simple ability to go get a cup of coffee it felt so great I felt intensely guilty and I also felt guilty because I had gone from being with my kids all the time being their primary their everything And then I wasn't. And so I had a lot of guilt about that, you know, and I just had to remind myself, no, they deserve a father. They deserve, they deserve to know their dad and know that he can do things for them. And so, yeah, so there's a lot of guilt and a lot of giddiness.
0: And you deserve to have time to yourself sometimes too.
2: I, (laughs) does any woman know that? Like, we say that. I know. Do we really know that?
0: (laughs) I actually, because I've seen lots of counsellors during my time, uh, especially after my divorce, and I remember saying, like, recently, I think it was, like, I feel guilty if I, like, have a day where I just have a bath and like do my nails and just chill out because it doesn't feel productive. Like I haven't got anything to show for that day. And I remember my counselor saying, well, is you, is you relaxing and like taking some time to calm your mind? Is that not something to show for that day? And then I was like, oh, interesting.
2: I, there are studies that show that women just don't believe we are owed or deserve, deserve free time, you know? And so I don't think it's just a thing in our heads. Um, it It is a thing that we believe and it's a product of sexism and misogyny and a capitalistic culture that teaches us that everything we do somehow has to be productive um, so there's a lot of factors working against us, and I still feel like that. There, uh, there was a, a couple a couple months ago. I, I work for a, a local newspaper, and a couple months in, in in pandemic, my workload just doubled. And then I had kids home, and we were doing Zoom school just like every, you know, like everybody in America, I was working and taking care of kids and it it was too much. And I remember just freaking out and like kind of breaking down. And then one of those weekends I ended up going to a little cabin and while I was at the cabin, I could do nothing. Like I literally just kind of read a book. I didn't even finish the book. Like it was just like, I literally just slept and laid on a couch, and I remember being like, Get up! Like, you have to do something, you have to be productive, like, go for a run, you know. A- and then, you know, and then a friend was like, You're breaking down, <laughs> like, you're falling apart, just lie on the couch. What is wrong with you? And so, yeah, I, I think about that often, especially now in this moment where women are so overworked, like I talk about in the article. You know, we were overworked and doing the majority of the childcare before. And now this pandemic is making that divide uh, more, more apparent. And because we've been stripped of a lot of our safety nets, um, you know, it's no longer safe to have your older parents come help out. Uh, Hiring a babysitter is a lot harder. Um, For many people, schools are closed and so, Now, uh, and there have been a lot of early studies that show this is forcing women out of the workforce because we just, we aren't even being given time to breathe.
0: I didn't know that, that studies have shown it's forcing women out of the workforce. That's having such a big impact on so many aspects of our lives, this pandemic. It is. And it is. I totally get what you. I mean, I don't have children, so I haven't had that sort of added pressure during lockdown. But I, um, I definitely feel the challenge to be productive. And I guess I was getting divorced, and I thought this isn't productive process. So I'll make a podcast because that's <laughs> productive. So uh, my guilt uh, of be, of not doing anything has led me to make this podcast to just be productive during lockdown. So I'm kind of chicken and the egg scenario.
2: I love it. I remember having a conversation with my lawyer um, during during my divorce where she said, somebody should start a podcast because we, she's like, even now, even now in this era we do, we don't talk honestly enough about divorce. Um, and she's like, it's still very stigmatized. It's still viewed as a failure. And, um, and, and she, you know, she was like, she was like, you should do it. You should start a podcast. And I was like, I can guarantee you one thing. I will never start a podcast.
0: Well, don't so you worry did.
2: So you did I'm it. here to
0: do it yeah. well that was the reason I started the podcast because I just didn't have anyone to talk to when I started getting divorced about divorce like I didn't have any friends who were going through it at the same time as me so it was started from like a selfish place of I just want to talk to someone who knows what I'm going through but I've discovered that it is still such a taboo subject which is crazy in 2020 but um people still don't share and 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 talk about the depths that you go to during divorce
2: i um i i I, again i have so many wonderful friendships and my two best friends in the entire world both had divorces before i did and so they were very wonderful to talk to, but I do, it's just incredible what people don't say. And I think that is, that, that's largely, I think, because women, even in divorce, are often given the, um, the burden of making things right you know what I mean? Like, we don't want a bad mouth. We don't want to cause waves, especially if there's children involved. I actually, there's a woman, um, I won't name her, but I had interviewed her for a story I did, uh, many years ago, not many years ago, a year ago. It feels like many years ago, but it was just (laughs) a year ago. And she just happened to be, um, Kind of like she had written a book about being a single mom and in our conversation I I was talking to her a little bit about divorce and She said something to me, which still sticks with me. She goes, listen I don't really talk about it because nobody likes a negative woman and that is that I mean she is a successful smart uh, prominent figure and and that is her response, and I, I, I think she said very bluntly, what a lot of women believe is that if I am out there telling the truth about my experience and talking about it, that people will think I am a negative woman, and that is that is something people do think, actually, but um, I don't really care, so <laughs>
0: <laughs> great. Well, no, I think, I think there is that cliche of like, bitter divorced woman who's just angry at all of mankind and the Institute of marriage. And Yes, I may have an aspect of that inside of me, but I'm a very layered individual and a comedian. And (laughs) I think divorce can be really funny as well as being horrific. And, you know, all of the sides of that need to be kind of shown, not just the kind of cliched bit.
2: Right. That it can be hard and also great. Like it can. and, And I also think a thing we don't talk about enough is that you can get divorced because you are unhappy that's an okay reason to split up like you don't have it doesn't have to be some like oh he was cheating with another woman and everything fell apart it, it doesn't have to be like that you just be like oh i'm miserable i tried to be unmiserable with you can't be unmiserable with you so now i'm gonna try to go be happy somewhere else and um i think that is something a lot of people misunderstand about my writing as they're like, well, you must be, you know, some miserable old spinster with a cat. And I was like, I have a cat. <laughs> I am often. <laughs> me miserable. too. Yeah. And I also have a dog. Like, and well, oh, my favorite was somebody had sent me an email and I'll always remember this. It was like, you sound like a person who has a house full of cats and a drawer full of dildos. And I was like, oh my God, that sounds like heaven. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. And,
2: and I was like, don't threaten me with a good time, sir. But um, yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, of course. Like, of course, I'm that. Every person should be bad on some level. Anger is not uh, anger is not a problem, you know. Uh, but uh, but also, I'm very happy, and um, I get divorced again in a heartbeat.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what what? I love that testimonial for divorce. <laughs> I, I love that a man emailed you that about cats and dildos. You got pussy in yeah. your house and dicks in your drawer.
2: <laughs> Ideal. I it, I was like, wow, wow. Now you've just, that's my vision board for my future. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, sir. Um, that actually, I got emailed. The first piece of writing I did about my divorce was two years ago. I wrote for Glamour, and the headline of the article: "Now that I'm divorced, I'm never cooking for a man again." <laughs> and it was kind of, uh, it was a little bit similar in that you know I talked about food, and how food had become my responsibility in the marriage, and and I uh, and I felt trapped by it. And then after getting divorced, I, I realized I don't, oh, I don't actually have to cook. We can just we. my kids are would love to just eat yogurt and cereal. And so would I, you know, and it, it turned into this thing where I was talking about shedding that expectation. And that's when that hate mail came in where he was like reading this article. It sound like you have a house full of cats and a drawer full of dildos. I was like, that reminds me I should buy another vibrator. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Well, I feel like everyone listening to this, whether they're male or female, no matter their sexual persuasion, needs to have that on their vision board because that's just an incredible (laughs) existence that we can all aspire to.
2: (laughs) If you take one thing from this conversation, it's that you should buy more vibrators and adopt more cats. Yeah.
0: I like that. I I want that to be the headline of this episode. Um, Definitely. So now you're happily divorced. You write about your experience, which is great because I think more people sharing their experience and getting it out there like in the media is so good for you know, the me who is in my marriage, like, oh my God, can I get divorced? Am I too young to get divorced? Is this a good idea? And I think hearing other people's experiences is so important. So thank you for all the work you're doing on that. Um, thank you. And then if anyone's listening, because you've talked a lot about having some great friendships and your friend who kind of said to you, maybe these things you're saying to me aren't the healthiest and maybe you need to reconsider some of the things. And I, I get a lot of people listening to this podcast who are not getting divorced themselves, but maybe know someone who is and do you think are there any things your friends did at that time that were particularly useful for you, or is there any kind of advice you'd have for someone in a support network of someone who's going through a divorce?
2: Uh, my friends were so crucial and still are so crucial. I, uh, you know, I, I think good strong female relationships is is an important thing to have in any any time in your life. Um, and uh, you know, it was it was the friends in my life who said, hey, a person hiding your stuff and not giving you access to your finances, that's not just like a small problem. That's actually concerning behavior. And you need to get your own therapist and talk to somebody about this. You know, so that was, that was a huge wake-up call just to have somebody say to you, Actually, what you're going through is a problem and it's, you need to handle it. So that was, that was a huge moment. And then the other, the other really important thing was, um, again, the same friend who said, your life is not a game of chicken. She had said something similar where she was like, I will be your friend forever, but you have been trying to make this work for so long. At some point you need to decide when you're done she's like because you are you've been trying to change this things aren't going to change so you need to know you need to either accept that this is the rest of your life or make a change you know and she's like I will be your friend no matter what I will be here and I will support you no matter what and I think that that signaled to me because I think it's so easy to get lost in your own disaster. You have no perspective. And so um, those were some tough, really tough things to say to a friend and even tougher to hear. Um, But I'm so immensely grateful that I had friends who were willing to have those hard conversations with me to say, we have been your friends for almost 20 years. We have heard you complain about the same goddamn thing. (laughs) for the past 12 years either nut up a change or settle in and so um I would say you can feel like you're risking your friendships to have some of those tough conversations um but I would say it's worth it's worth it you know you can have them in a kind loving way and if you have that that bedrock of a good long friendship that I think I think it's okay to push back and say, hey, you've sounded miserable and you sound miserable and it's okay to be happy and it's okay to leave.
0: Yeah, I think that's sometimes you do have to be the person to break it to them. And hopefully if your friendship is a good one, then it'll survive that. Yeah. Um... So just to round off, I ask people things that I've been going through recently that maybe they can relate to and see your take on it. So I have, I'm still living in the house that I shared with my ex, but now it's mine and I'm making it my own. And I've like painted the bathroom pink. I've painted a big, recently, I during lockdown, I've painted a big like circular orange sun on one wall and like stuff that he would definitely have been like, please don't do that in this house before. And I've just really enjoyed like making it my own. Do you remember the first time you were like making a space just for you and you didn't have to negotiate?
2: Yes, I, um, I... I'm actually, you know, a middle aged woman who loves to decorate. And um, I, I, I'm the one who moved out. And so I got a new place. And I remember, um, I remember like being at a, a home or at a Target store and seeing this like fuzzy footstool and like being like, ah, oh, that thing's hilarious. I'd love to buy it, but uh, I probably, and I was like, wait. I'm an like adult here. If I want to buy a ridiculous fuzzy footstool, I can do it. And, uh, and, and I was like, oh, and if I regret it, who cares? It's a fuzzy footstool. And it cost me $30. And I have done a lot worse things in my life than this. So don't worry about it. So yeah, I, I remember that moment of being like, nah, I'm gonna buy it. And then like picking it up and like, marching to the check it out, telling the cashier, I'm like, I'm buying this fuzzy footstool. And she's like, cool, ma'am, please stop talking to me. And then bringing it home and like setting it down and being like, hell yeah, I bought a fuzzy footstool (laughs) and everybody just being like, this is really, this is what you're doing with your freedom. And I'm in a new house now. And because I wrote this book on, on religion. I, while I was writing that book, I started collecting creepy pictures of Jesus. Um, so (laughs) I mean, cause there's so many of them and especially in like secondhand stores, in the Midwest there's all you know so many churches have closed so there's all these like weird light up pictures of a Jesus who looks you know vaguely sexy but also kind of concerning and so I started collecting them and now I have this I call it my creepy Jesus wall I was I just, so like, hung hoping all the pictures. you
0: were gonna say that you had <laughs> collected them and put them on the wall
2: yeah. So I have this whole wall where it's like, now if you come into my home and I can show you, cause we're doing video where you come into my home, you're just like, you're like, hello, welcome to Liz's home. Oh, there's a wall of creepy light up pictures of Jesus. Okay. And it like, it's so upsetting to people a little bit, especially if they don't know me. They're like, do you love G- G- Jesus? I'm like, oh yeah, Jesus. He's so sexy. Look at him. Look at him. <laughs>
0: I think that's the best answer I've ever had to that question <laughs> of like how have you made a house your home I've got a wall of three light up jesus's fair so apart from the Jesus wall <laughs> which is amazing um I've also been doing stuff like for the first time that I never did Did before because my ex used to do it. So like I mowed the lawn, which sounds like a small thing, but I felt so empowered when I was like hoovering up that grass. And I've put like a wooden box together on my own and and loads of stuff like that. Is there anything you did? I also changed my broadband, which was a big big moment. Is there anything you did for the first time, like like a simple task that made you feel ridiculously empowered? It might be. It sounds like it could be the jesus wall
2: i i mean nothing's more empowering than our lord jesus christ um (laughs) but um i i what i will say is i um i tried to mow the lawn I, in my first house before I bought this house, the landlord had left this lawn mower and I was like trying to fix it and make it work and I was like watching YouTube videos and I was calling my dad crying like, I, I'm an empowered woman, I can mow the lawn. And I remember going into my therapist's office, smelling of gas and grass and her being like, you don't have to mow your lawn, you can hire someone <laughs> and I was like, oh. Hell yeah, I can hire someone. So, I think for me, the empowering moment was realizing, oh, I don't have to be empowered. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So, um, well, thank you so much. This has been great. Where can people find you online and buy your books and things?
2: You can find me on Twitter at LYZL. Also, on I have a website, uh, LYZLENZ.com. Um, And you can buy my books. Um, My books are linked there. Um, You can also buy my books anywhere books are sold. And I would encourage people to go to their local independent bookstore. And my two books are called Godland and Belabored.
0: Amazing. Well, thank you so much. It's great.
2: Thank you. Have a nice day.
0: Oh, hi. Thank you for listening to The Divorce Social with me, Samantha Baines. Please leave us a review. Please, please. Um, it would be super nice. They're lovely to read. They keep me cheery and happy and keep me going. Uh, but also it affects our listing, the podcast charts, uh, which are very important because that's how more people find the podcast. And I'd love to help. More people get through those really tough heartbreak and divorce times, and they're more likely to find us if we're higher up on the charts. So, if you'd like to leave a review, I'd love you forever. You can leave them on iTunes, is the big one, or most podcast platforms do them as well. I'll take all the reviews you've got to give. You can also uh, get in contact on Twitter and Instagram at Divorce Pod and at Samantha Baines. We have a website, thedivorcesocial.com. And we have a Patreon account, which means the use